Well, last Sunday, I said that we had reached the end of Nehemiah, and I said that on purpose uh, because I didn't want to say that we had reached the end of the series on Ezra and Nehemiah because there was one final sermon that I wanted to preach. I wanted to end the series out of the last uh, chapters of the book of Zechariah. Now, you remember, if you've been here through the whole series, that we not only looked at Ezra and Nehemiah, which really covers the history of post-exilic Israel, uh, that group that had returned after the exile uh, under Persian rule, but we also took breaks here and there to look at the three post-exilic prophets that had spoken to that group of people, and we looked at what it was that they said and and how it was that, that those prophets encouraged them to get back to the work that God had called them to do. And so we looked at the prophets Haggai and Malachi, and, and we looked at part of Zechariah. We looked at Zechariah chapters 1 through 8. And if you remember, uh, most of that section was made up of these night visions that the prophet had. And we looked closely, pretty closely at that. We could have gone into even greater detail. Uh, but we looked, we took our time through it, and we looked at, uh, at those uh, sections, one through eight, uh, at a relatively reasonable pace. And so today, I am looking at the second half of Zechariah, chapters nine through 14, in one sermon. Now, obviously, there's a lot. I have been told by a few people this week, including my best friend who's a pastor in Maryland, <laughs> I mentioned that I was preaching on Zechariah uh, 9 through 14, and he, after a long pause in his text, wrote back and said, the whole thing? <laughs> you know? And then, uh, and then uh, uh, Jim, this morning, uh, uh, he said the same thing, and then this morning he said, yeah, when I first read it, I thought you were doing Zechariah 9 verse 14. Uh, so, this is going to be a flyover we could spend months in just this section alone. But I divided it this way and waited until now because Zechariah really is conveniently divided into these two sections. Uh, everyone recognizes that, scholars recognize that Zechariah really is divided that way, that eight, 1 through 8 is one section and 9 through 14 another, and it's, it's very different. 9 through 14 has a very different feel. It's, it's almost as if it's composed by a completely different person. It's so different. And I wanted to save this series until now because what it gives us in 9 through 14 are apocalyptic visions of the future. The word apocalypse or apocalyptic, we find apocalyptic literature in the Bible. We find it, for instance, in the book of Daniel. Uh, we also find it in the book of Revelation in the New Testament, the last book of the Bible. The book, the, the, the word apocalypse, it's, it's a Greek word, and it just means an unveiling or a revealing. In fact, that final book is called the Apocalypse of John, which we also call the Revelation of John, Re really Revelation of Jesus to John. But Zechariah here will give us snapshots, snapshots through chapters 9 and 14 of the future, not necessarily of chronological sequence, they're snapshots kind of, of, of the future going backward and forward as, as apocalyptic literature oftentimes does, but snapshots that show an ultimate future of hope for the people of Israel. And my hope this morning, no pun intended, is that it will give us hope and it will show us 
just how amazing our God truly is. I'm not going to read the entire text because it would take up most of my sermon time, uh, but I'm going to, we are going to look through the whole thing again uh, this morning, uh, sort of flying over, but I am going to um, look at and read this morning the end, uh, beginning at Zechariah chapter 13, and let me find it here, Zechariah chapter 13 and we will go uh, through the end, 14.21. So 13.7 through 14.21. Says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth, On that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site, from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepress. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall be never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security." And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. 
Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. (laughs) You can see that chapters 9 through 14, this section that we'll be looking at, can be really divided into two halves. If you look at Zechariah 9, chapter 9, verse 1, you see written there a phrase, the oracle of the word of the Lord. And then if you turn to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1, you see that again, that same phrase, the oracle of the word of the Lord. And so those are the two sections, uh, equally divided, chapters 9 through 11 is one section, and then chapters 12 through 14 is the other section. And that's what I'm going to be kind of looking at today, uh, looking at it in two sections. The first section, chapters 9 through 11, I'm going to summarize this way. The arrival of the king and the rejection of the shepherd. And then in chapters 12 through 14, the striking of the shepherd and the triumph of God. So let's look first at chapters 9 through 11. Now think about this. What shape was Judah in when Zechariah delivered this prophecy? Well, if you've been here throughout the series, you know that they weren't in good shape at all. They had been exiled. They had just been returned from exile. They hadn't been in the land that long, and they had already been... uh, essentially forced to stop building the temple, which was the whole reason they were sent back there in the first place. They stopped building the temple. They abandoned God's work. They went back to their old ways, and they left the city a smoldering ruin. There were few in number. They had no money. They really were a ragtag people living in an area that really was surrounded by enemies and not doing well. And Zechariah comes on the scene, and and he delivers these prophecies to that group of people. And notice that he begins in this section, chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, by saying that God will one day defeat all of Israel's enemies. Now again, if you're living in in that day, in that time, uh, that's great news. Because there's no way that you're going to think that you're going to defeat all of these enemies. What do you have to beat them with? And yet God promises, and in verses 1 to 4 there in chapter 9, it really speaks to the enemies of the north, and then in verses 5 to 8 in that section, it speaks of the enemies to the south. God 
promises them that one day your enemies will be a thing of the past. And I want us to think just how impossible that must have seemed to these people. For example, note, and we'll just zero in on, on one of the nations that are mentioned here. God mentions Tyre, the city of Tyre. Tyre was an island fortress known for its incredible wealth. Tyre was fabulously wealthy. You see here in the way that, that's spoken that it has silver and gold that's like the dust of the earth piled up in storehouses. On top of that, it was essentially an impregnable fortress. You see here mentioned that it has this rampart. This rampart was built, actually, uh, you might remember the name Hiram, king of Tyre, and this rampart was built by him during the days of David and Solomon. Uh, and he was actually friends of those two kings of Israel. And so this rampart has been there for a long time, and this rampart is 820 yards long, and this rampart is nine yards thick. Now you can imagine at that time with the kind of weaponry that could have been brought against that how really this place was impregnable. No one could defeat it. And Tyre had expert builders. They had the best sailors of the day. They were the technological and uh, wealth-building powerhouse of that time. And especially compared to this ragtag group here in Judah, what would they look like compared to Tyre? Well, they would look like nothing. And yet God says that the Lord will strip Tyre of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea and she shall be devoured by fire. Now, if you're hearing that, what are you thinking? How in the world is this going to happen? That phrase there that he will strike down her power on the sea, that could equally be translated, he will hurl her wealth into the sea. Either way, it makes sense. Tyre is going to be defeated at some point. Many years before Zechariah, almost 100 years, the prophet Ezekiel said the same thing. He said, thus says the Lord God to Tyre, will not the coastland shake at the sound of your fall when the wounded groan, when slaughter is made in your midst? Then all the princes of the sea will step down from their thrones, remove their robes, strip off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground and tremble every moment and be appalled at you. Ezekiel's recognizing your tire is so magnificent. Same thing with Zechariah, that when it falls, all the surrounding nations are going to tremble that such a thing could even happen. And Tyre survived Attack after attack after attack and never succumbed to anyone. 200 years after Zechariah promised that it would happen, a man named Alexander the Great came on the scene. And Alexander the Great constructed a causeway across the Mediterranean Sea and he finally conquered Tyre. He went in, he killed all of its leaders, he enslaved most of its people, he stripped it of all of its wealth, and historians say that Tyre never recovered. And when Alexander the Great did that, all of the surrounding nations fell into trembling, and he went on a post-Tyre military expedition 
and began conquering all of the nations in Syria, Palestine. Just as God said it would happen hundreds of years earlier. Friends, God keeps his promises no matter how outlandish they might seem at the time. A thousand years is as a day to God. And so God tells Israel that all of its enemies will fall. Well, you see, if I'm hearing that, and I'm living there at that time, I would think, how can this happen? How can Israel's enemies fall when Israel, when Judah, when Jerusalem has no king? If we don't have a king, if we have local governors, and if we're under the rule of Persia, which is what they were at the time, then how could we muster any forces to go and conquer these nations? Well, Zechariah has an answer for that. Verse 9, Rejoice, O greatly, daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you! Notice God's promise. Jerusalem is not only going to be free from enemies one day, but Jerusalem will have a king one day. Jerusalem hasn't had a king in a long time. Again, they're under Persian rule, but Zechariah promises. Notice what he says about this king. He says that he will be a righteous king. In fact, this king that is coming will be the embodiment of righteousness. And if I'm there that day, I, that is, in fact, words that would cause rejoicing. Because if you think about it, the whole reason I'm standing there looking at a pile of rubble in Jerusalem is because king after king after king that we had were wicked. They turned aside from God. They followed the idols of the nations, and God brought down judgment on the land and destroyed them because of unrighteous kings. But this king, this coming king, is going to be the very embodiment of righteousness. And furthermore, he is going to bring salvation with him. If I'm listening to that, I am excited. A righteous king is coming who is bringing salvation from our enemies. If I'm hearing that at that time, my mind is going straight back to the days of David and Solomon. In fact, better than the days of David and Solomon because as we all know, David was unrighteous at points and Solomon was so unrighteous that it led to the split of Israel. And so now we have a king that is going to be completely righteous, and he will rescue us from our enemies. It will be like glory like we've never seen before. But then, Zechariah throws a curveball. You see, he will come into town humbly riding on a donkey. Now, what kind of king is this? And what kind of salvation can this king possibly bring? When kings rode into town to defeat enemies, they rode in on a war horse, not on a donkey. Kings sometimes did ride on donkeys, but, but when they rode on donkeys, it was still uh, full of pomp and circumstance. A king that rode in on a donkey rode in for a royal function. He wasn't going out to war, but he was nevertheless showing how incredible he was. But this king is going to ride in, not on a war horse, not wielding a sword. In addition, he's going to ride in humbly on this donkey. That word humbly in Hebrew, it points to being poor. So this king will be a poor king 
Who will ride in on a donkey? What kind of king will this be? And how can he possibly bring salvation from our enemies? Well, we find in verses 10 through 13 that this king not only brings salvation from our enemies, but he brings peace. And it's one thing to have no more enemies. It's another thing to have peace throughout the land. The, the word peace here, translated peace, that's the Hebrew word you've probably heard many times, shalom. And that Hebrew word encapsulates more than just an absence of conflict. That would be good enough if there was no more conflict. But, but what it includes in it is that this king is bringing with him completeness, wholeness, complete satisfaction. As one scholar puts it, he is bringing the sum total of everything good and life-enhancing. And this king brings this shalom ultimately not only to Jerusalem, but Zechariah says he's going to bring this shalom to the whole world. That his reign is not only going to be just over Jerusalem, but his reign will extend to the whole world. He does not wield the sword. He comes as one humbly reliant completely on God and yet brings peace to the entire world. Not only will wars cease and peace be restored, but prisoners, Zechariah says, will be set free. How does all of this happen? If he doesn't wield the sword, how does this, all of this magnificent promise that Zechariah promises happen? Well, we see here that Zechariah says, speaking as God, through the blood of my covenant with you. Through the blood of my covenant with you. Now, Israel had signed a covenant with God at Mount Sinai. We've talked about that before. It was what's called a suzerain vassal covenant. God was the suzerain king, the great king that had rescued the nation of Israel from slavery, and on Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with them, and they were the, the vassal state, the state that owed the suzerain complete and full obedience, and, and that was the covenant that was signed there. It was a traditional suzerain vassal covenant where God demanded complete, full, and perfect obedience, and if Israel gave him that, then they would stay in the land forever. But, God said, if you break my law, if you fall into disobedience, if you run after idols, then you will be destroyed and sent into exile. And that's exactly what happened. So what is God talking about here? That, that is through the blood of my covenant that all of these things will happen. Well, for that, we go back to a covenant that was made prior to the one on Mount Sinai. We go back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. In Genesis 15. And it was in that covenant where Abraham split the animals in half and was preparing to walk through the cut animals, preparing to sign a traditional suzerain vassal treaty where he would have to uh, uh, state that he would fully obey God. And a funny thing happened God put Abraham asleep. And as Abraham slept, God walked through the pieces himself, thereby saying, Abraham, I am going to fulfill your side of the covenant as well. And in addition to that, I will take upon myself the punishment for your failures. 
God is reminding them of that covenant. And we see in Genesis 15, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And we see this phrase here in Genesis 15. It says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And it's interesting that it says on that day because that phrase, that statement on that day occurs 18 times in these chapters of Zechariah 9 through 14. We see the first one, first time that phrase is uttered in chapter 9, verse 16. It says, on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. On that day, Zechariah promises that the Lord God will save them as his flock. But you see, chapters 10 and 11 show that it's not going to be without trial. That God's people will be saved, but they will have to go through hardship and trials. Because if Israel's kings were terrible, then their shepherds, their religious leaders, were equally terrible. We see in Zechariah 10, verses 3 through 4, God says, My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock. I will make them like his majestic steed in battle. Much earlier... God essentially said the same thing against the the shepherds of Israel. In the book of Ezekiel, he says, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, because my shepherds have fed themselves, they've not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. So what we see in this prophecy, in in all of these prophecies, is that really Israel lacks two things, or two people. Israel lacks a good king, and Israel lacks a good shepherd. They have neither. And yet, God... In Zechariah and and in Ezekiel, he promises that one day he is going to gather the sheep himself. That there will be a shepherd who will come, and somehow the shepherd will be God himself. See, God's people have shepherds, they just aren't good. And so God promises that he himself will be the good shepherd that they never had. In Ezekiel 34, he says, No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue the sheep. I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, so I will seek out my sheep. Zechariah, in this section, is then instructed by God to act. He's instructed by God to act out the part of a good shepherd, to put on the clothes of a good shepherd and, and, and demonstrate for the people who this good shepherd will be, what he will be like, what he will look like. And what we see in this section of Zechariah is that this good shepherd that Zechariah acts like is rejected by God's people. When he comes on the scene, he is rejected, and he's not only rejected by those he is seeking to care for, but we see in verses 12 to 14 that 
he is really insulted as well. Because after Zechariah acts like this good shepherd, he acts for payment. God says, ask them for payment for what you have done. And what the people pay him are 30 pieces of silver. Which, if you know the Old Testament, you find out that 30 pieces of silver is the lowest price that a person would pay for a human being. The lowest price that someone would pay for, the, for a slave. And so in other words, the people are insulting Zechariah by paying him only 30 pieces of silver, which shows how little they value this good shepherd. And so God says, take that 30 pieces of silver that you have paid, and I want you to throw it into my house, into the potter, which Zechariah does. Zechariah says, so I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Which brings us to the next half, chapters 12 to 14, the piercing of the Messiah, the striking of the shepherd, and the triumph of God. And notice here, beginning in chapter 12, verses 1 to 9 here, is very much like chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. Because God says, on that day, I will destroy, again, he goes back to that same theme of destroying all the enemies that come against his people. But then, just as this king coming humbly on a donkey, Zechariah promises something quite head-scratching in verses 10 to 14. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. See, on that day, God promises that he will pour out a spirit of compassion and supplication. He says, so that when they look on me, remember, this is God speaking, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall weep over him as one weeps over a firstborn. We see that somehow it is God himself who is pierced when his Messiah is pierced. And we see here in chapter 13, verse 1, that it is through this piercing that forgiveness of sins comes to God's people. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. God's people pierce his Messiah they in some way pierce God himself, and yet this piercing opens up a fountain of forgiveness for his people. Earlier, again, through the prophet Ezekiel, God promises, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. How will this happen? Well, in chapter 13, verses 7 to 9, Zechariah says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man 
who stands next to me. Once again, we see that this good shepherd enters the scene. But this time it's not Zechariah acting like a good shepherd. This time it is this good shepherd who is to come. And remember, God promised that he himself would be the shepherd. So somehow we have this blending of this man, this good shepherd who would come, and God. And look at what is said. This time, amazingly, it is not the people who are highlighted who reject the good shepherd. This time, amazingly, it is God himself who is commanding that the sword strike the shepherd. God is commanding that this shepherd be struck. But this shepherd, you might ask, is God's shepherd. This shepherd, he says, is the man who stands next to me. And yet, even though this man is God's shepherd, nevertheless, it is God himself who commands that he is struck with the sword. Much earlier, this time not the prophet Ezekiel, but the prophet Isaiah, said the same thing. In Isaiah 53, he says, Surely he, my servant, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Yet out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. God says that out of the people, two-thirds will be cut off and perish, and one-third will be refined in the fire of his righteousness. And those one-third, you see, will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Why in the world would God put his own good shepherd to death so that God's people could be saved? And then we see in chapter 14 that all of this leads to the day that is coming. Zechariah tells us that there is a day that is coming for the Lord. That on that day, the Lord God will fight against the nations that are against Him and that His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you've seen the Mount of Olives. You've probably maybe even seen it in uh, films or documentaries. I've stood on the Mount of Olives. It basically runs north to south. It's on the east side of the city. It sits higher than the Temple Mount so that you can look out over the whole city when you're standing on it. And in between the Mount of Olives and the city of Jerusalem is this deep valley, the Kidron Valley. And it was on the Mount of Olives that Ezekiel said that the Lord stood. Picture this, that God's obviously invisible. He is immaterial. But when Ezekiel prophesies that the glory of God would leave the temple, when the temple would be destroyed, Ezekiel said that the glory of God would depart out of the east and stand on the Mount of Olives and depart from there. And Ezekiel promised in chapter 43 that when the glory of God would return, he would return via the Mount of Olives. 
Jesus, when he ascended into heaven after his resurrection, ascended from the Mount of Olives. And the angel said, when he returns, he will return the same way. And Zechariah says here that when the Lord returns, he will stand on the Mount of Olives and that he will split it in two. The picture is that his feet will land and that it will be split in two and and the north side will go north and the south side will go south, creating a huge valley and pathway for God to enter into Zion. And Zechariah promises on that day There will be no more night, but only one continuous day. On that day, a river of living water will flow from Jerusalem, never to stop. On that day, he says, Jerusalem will dwell in utter security. On that day, interestingly, he says that holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses. Holy to the Lord, that phrase was inscribed on one place. It was inscribed on the high priest. And the high priest was the only one who could enter into the presence of the Lord, into the Holy of Holies. And what Zechariah is promising is that on that day, when God returns, that everything even down to the most mundane articles, even down to the bells on the horses and the bowls and utensils that are used by the people of the Lord will have inscribed on them, holy to the Lord. What Zechariah is promising is that on that day, when our Lord returns, that everything, even the most mundane, will be forever made holy to the Lord. As I close, I want us to consider today how many of Zechariah's listeners on the day that he delivered this lived to see any of these things fulfilled. They they didn't even live to see Tyre fall. That was the first of these things to happen. Much less did any of them live to see any of these other things fulfilled. But looking at it from this side of the cross, we can see how all of these threads came together in one person. As the people listened to all of these threads and all of these different themes, they must have thought, who are all of these people going to be? Who is this king going to be who's going to ride in on a donkey? Who is this good shepherd going to be who is going to be struck and rejected by the people. Who is this Messiah going to be who's going to be pierced? Who is this one who is going to be sold for 30 pieces of silver? But don't you see, brothers and sisters, how even though they didn't see it, everything that Zechariah said was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. 500 years after Zechariah gave this prophecy, Jesus would be the king who rode in on a donkey. Jesus would be the good shepherd. Jesus would be the one sold for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus would be the cornerstone. I didn't even mention that. Jesus would be the one who was pierced. 
Jesus would be the one who would be struck by God himself. Jesus would be the one through whom salvation would come. Jesus would be the light of the world in whom there was no darkness. And Jesus would be the fount of living water. See, brothers and sisters, when Jesus came the first time, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. Not everything that Zechariah said would pass has happened. On the day that Jesus came that first time, and he went to the cross, and he rose again, the kingdom of God was inaugurated. But that day, though it has been inaugurated, it has not yet been consummated. And so we live on one side of many of the things that have already been fulfilled, but we live prior to the full fulfillment that will be here one day, as sure as those things happened in that day. You see, I I wanted to close on this because I think what I see in myself and in so many people in this world, including Christians, is a lack of hope. I think so many in this world today have lost hope in any good that can come out of history. And when I talk to Christians, I see them losing hope as well because they've put their hope in the wrong place. Where do you go today for hope? I read an article just the other day about a woman who was in the Philippines, and who took a picture of a cloud formation. Maybe some of you have seen this. The clouds formed, incredibly, the word love in the sky. And she took a photo, and I guess tweeted it out or somehow, and I read an article about this. And the title of the article read this, Amazing Photo of Clouds Forming the Word Love Gives People Hope amidst global crises. Friends, that's a cloud formation. What hope does it really give? If that's all we have to cling to, then we are, above all, most to be pitied. What hope do cloud formations that can do nothing have for this world? Even if they form the world love, we don't even know what love means or how to give or receive it. Friends, those are clouds. They offer no hope. But this morning, Zechariah offers us real hope. Because our hope lay in the cross. What happened on that day, on a hill outside of Jerusalem, on a bloody cross, assures us of that day when our Lord returns to stand on the Mount of Olives. Friends, do you think that a God who could get all of this right hundreds of years before it happened, won't get the end of all things right as well. This morning, Christian, as you leave here, be filled with hope and be assured of all of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. We thank you for this passage, this magnificent prophecy from you. Lord, we live in a time still struggling with 
lack of hope, lack of love, lack of joy. Father, we pray that you would fill us with all of those things as we look forward to the return of our Savior, King. Lord, please fill us with that hope this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.